I've never seen athletes work like these dogs work before ever. And I've never seen them do it with the enthusiasm that they bring to it. They're big, they're fast, they're furry, and they like their musher. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today we're having some fun with a little weird veterinary experience to boot. We talked to Dr. Greg Keenel, who practices small animal medicine in hot, hot Florida with his wife. But come every spring, he waits by the phone to figure out where in Alaska he's flying to this time to help as a volunteer doctor for the dogs running the cross-country Iditarod. So Greg, come on, you've got the hot weather, spring in Florida, why go cold to a place where the big huskies start getting too hot when it's over zero? Complete opposite end of the country, really. I mean, if you look at it, if you look at it on a map, it's like Miami or South Florida and Anchorage, Alaska, you can't get farther apart (laughs) anywhere. You're north, southeast, It's about 11 total to get there. I mean, they, it's in two legs. I, I love that there was a Miami Anchorage direct flight, but there's not. There's usually okay. Seattle or something. But, um, I mean, I grew up in Chicago, so I had been used to the cold, but I abandoned it. I was done with the winters up there when I came to Florida. I didn't realize kind of how depressing it was. But I never really liked the winters when I came down here, but... We were vacationing up there. We were cruising like six years ago, and um, we were up in Fairbanks at the time, my wife and I and family, and we ended up visiting one of Susan Butcher. She's a musher that passed away several years ago, but she uh-huh. has a dog kennel up there, and um, you know, it was an interesting part of the trip, and my wife's like, well, they must have people that take care of these dogs. Like, how does that work? And I'm like, I have no idea. And to me, I knew about the Iditarod growing up, but, you know, just from studying it in school, it wasn't anything that was really known to me. Did you go out and see her? I mean, did you also, were you out as you were sort of musing about this with your wife? Were you out looking at her dogs and stuff? Well, like her dogs were separate. They wouldn't let you see them per se, but like they had a couple of like uh, petting dogs that they kind of, but family, yeah, 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 yeah. But none that they would use for training or anything like that. But uh, but she said, well, you know, you should look into that. I think she was looking to give me something to do. And I said, I don't know. I mean, that I don't. That's probably really whatever excuse I made. But then when we got back to our hotel that night, she put out a feeler email to some of our vet school friends, and it just so happened that one of my classmates' good friends is a veterinarian for the race and she's like well i have a buddy and his name happens to be greg and his name's greg and he does the iditarod and i said well all right you got me into it so now follow through and the next thing you know now i think she's regretting the decision because as soon as i leave there at the end of march i'm already looking forward to next year and it's just this thing for me now that maybe she wishes she didn't push the button to get me going but before i did a rod did you have a thing like were you a fishing guy or you're a pool guy or you're a football guy did you already have like this hobby that was consuming the way it sounds like maybe this work hobby became a huge yeah. thing not a work related hobby like this but you know i mean i think over the years i've dabbled i did we talked briefly i did triathlons for maybe a little over a decade yeah i fly i'm a pilot so i do that I mean, I don't pick cheap hobbies. Let's put it that way. No. It's, not, it's not like I'm 
I'm not doing home gardening. It's like I'll figure, find something that has a sense of adventure to it, a sense of risk. But I think for me also what I look for is something that, that brings with it the reward of achievement. I don't know. I still look for, for that sort of thing. Well, when you talk about flying, you're talking about like uh, like just single – like yeah. Cessna's? Okay. Yeah, like little stuff, but enough. Okay. You know, I mean, we're talking 172s, uh, little four-seater planes, that okay. sort of thing. You know, again, it's something that's different. Not everybody does it, and it's challenging, and I think that's why it appeals to me. Are you saying the Iditarod is – being involved in the Iditarod is more expensive than flying planes? No, definitely not. I mean, planes, I think that's where the money's at. I mean, just to rent them, it's just, it's more expensive. It's probably about $150, $200 an hour. Really, at this point, I mean, I've been doing the the Iditarod now for six years. So the initial gear was like, okay, I got to outfit myself big time because I don't have anything like that down here. I don't have this big winter Arctic parka or these big Alaskan (laughs) pack boots. I mean, who has that that lives down here? Nobody. So. And do the veterans, so the people who are not on the team, so people like you who are sort of volunteer, are you volunteers or these teams don't pay for, hey, we pay a full-time veterinarian to come down and that's you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's volunteer work okay. in quotation marks. So, okay. right? right, so they do give you a stipend. It's like $400 for your time there, which helps to kind of defray the cost of the plane ticket, you know. Right, but I think that's really what you're you're paying for. But you're also getting the experience of being there. I mean, you're visiting Alaska that nobody gets to see unless you're living in one of these little remote villages. Nobody gets there, so it's the adventure. You're, that's kind of your entry fee, really. So you you meet this. So there's other Greg. So you're right. Greg. Yes. And uh-huh. There's other Greg who also does it. How much is the onboarding? Is it like you have to come out for two weeks to figure all this out? Or do they're just like, you're a veterinarian and you know dogs, so you'll probably be fine. If you've worked with working dogs or sports dogs, fine, no problem. Just come out and we'll do it on the fly. Or do you have to train? Yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, there is an interview process that they go through. And there's a head veterinarian. He's been doing it for two decades plus. And part of the interview process is like, hey, you know, do you have any work with these sorts of animals. And that was tough for me because I don't, you know, I mean, I like, I've worked with some cool, like, uh, you know, police dogs and, and bomb sniffers in my career, but nothing, nothing athletic. I mean, greyhounds, but that's a totally different breed. But, um, and then the other part of it is, you know, we're not staying in the Ritz here. This is like, can you live in conditions that are way below zero? And, you know, what's your sort of background in, outdoorsmanship do you have that survival mentality or capability because it plays a role as much as it may sound tongue-in-cheek i mean it's one of those things where you do have to think about these things because it can become a dangerous situation it never has thankfully but you're in the alaska bush in the middle of winter and so not all the time are people and doctors and stuff readily accessible to you when you go out, how long is the entire process from when you fly in and fly out? And are you there for the entire competition or do they bring you in for part of it? Yeah, so I might fly into Anchorage, let's say on Sunday. Okay. And honestly, up until then, I have no idea where I'm going and when I'm going. <laughs> Wait, what? Because are the conditions with the Iditarod, are they just picking a place that has the ideal conditions? So it can no. just be anywhere? No. What's the deal? There are two routes that they run and they alternate. Okay. 
every year. There's a north route and a southern route. They both start in Anchorage or short a little bit north of there, and they both end in Nome. Um, so they traverse over over the course of almost a thousand miles and the Alaskan Range and some of these um, Eskimo villages and and that sort of thing on the way out. But there's such a variation in weather and staffing and who can come and when they can come. And even though it's scheduled where the ideal situation where you could be, it's all put in pencil. And even before the race starts, there's changes being made. Maybe planes can't take off. Maybe they can't ferry people to where they need to be. So literally, I don't know where I'm going until they're like, okay, Greg, you're going here. The plane leaves tomorrow at nine, be (laughs) packed and ready to go. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. So that, that brings in a sense of adventure too, because it, you can't plan for that. Is the race always X amount of days or does weather cause delays? And so you go out on a Sunday. So they mm. tell you when you're coming and you show up. So how long could it go? What's the longest you've... Yeah, so the race, it, I mean, the winner does it. Let's say the the fastest time was last year or two years ago. It was like seven days and change. But usually they'll complete that in around eight to nine days. But they put a two-week limit on there because there's a great variation in experience in some of the mushers that do it. And some of them are doing it to be competitive and some of them are doing it to put a notch in their list of things that they've accomplished. So two weeks is the longest that they'll do it. And then they're pretty much, if you can't get it done by then, they'll pretty much take you off the trail and say, okay, well, you're done now. Maybe you like to be out there for the maximum amount of time. Is everybody so excited to be there that they're fine? Because in a marathon, you've run these races where some people are hyper competitive, they're showing up early. The stragglers are people who have never done this or they had a problem or they're just they're super slow and they just finish. It's not just being standing around for a few hours at the end of the race. But this is like you're staying for days for the back end stragglers. Days in my time there. Okay, I have not yet been able to see the race in its entirety to completion. I have been there when they have the people have won, but it takes so long to get the back finisher all the way across to Nome. It could be almost a week before they're there. So they still have to keep some of these more northern checkpoint staff. And so they're more or less leapfrogging veterinarians up the trail from one checkpoint to another to another to catch the next round of teams coming through. And so towards the end, yes, you do kind of get a pile up of, you know, volunteer staff, veterinarians, trail crew, judges or whatever. And then, you know, it, you're there, the mushers are there, and yeah, a lot of them wait around because they have this big banquet on the two-week mark of the race, and big party. So, it, yeah, it's kind of a big party at the end, and then, yep, you go home. What kind of problems were you led to expect were possible with the dogs? And then how often do human medical, so how often do physician and nurse problems pop up versus veterinarian and vet tech problems? What's kind of the proportion? What's it like? Yeah, I mean, most of it. of it is veterinary related. Okay. So the people, the mushers are usually in good health and they usually don't have problems. It's problems with the dogs. Okay. Usually, you know, we had one experience with a musher last year or two years ago, but in a general sense, there's, it's more dog problems. And and a lot of these, they're non-life-threatening, thank goodness, or we wouldn't be able to do the race. I mean, it, it just comes with a lot of a political perspective too, from the lower 48 and some, 
animal rights organizations that, that really don't want this race to go on anymore. But in a general sense, we see a lot of dogs that they get sore. They get sore shoulders or they get sore wrists. And the mushers who are so in tune to their team and very well aware of dogs that may not be pulling or that just are tired, they will take them off their team and they'll leave them with us at the various checkpoints. And then they'll be rested with us and looked at and treated. And then they're flown back to Anchorage where they're then taken to their kennels or wherever they go from there. So do they run with a dog down or two dogs down or do they always have subs? Nope. We got another dog. We can put no subs. So you can start with 14. You can start with 14 and you have to finish with five, but what you do and how you do along the way is up to you. And, um, you know, there are some mushers that strategize like, all right, I'm going to keep 14 going, but maybe in the last third of the race, I may, you know, return a few just to make my team a little lighter. Some of the heavier dogs, they may take off the the line too. However, their strategies are some even rotate dogs. They have, I mean, they're on a sled. And so there's a bag on that sled. That's a pretty good size. They might put one dog in the sled to rest and let the other 13 (laughs) pull it. I mean, that's a strategy. I've seen quite a few different things, but, uh, but yeah, sometimes they'll just, they'll leave dogs and continue on without them depending upon their need. Is it scary going from, so you're in private practice and, you know, you're in a hospital with all the bells and whistles and then you go out here and you guys are probably at these checkpoints, you know, you're bivouacking in whatever. I mean, it's whatever. So whatever equipment you have, do you always feel like, oh, no, we never really need the full extent of running it to the hospital. It's almost always whatever we can bring in is plenty. Or do you sometimes like lament the fact that I don't have all my stuff here? You know, I think it's one of the things that you're prepared for. And, you you know, you talk about training. I mean, there is a subsection of veterinary medicine of more or less bush medicine, <laughs> right. which, which is what it is. I mean, we have these pretty good sized boxes that have a decent amount of medical supplies, albeit short supply. I mean, we've got fluids and IVs and splints and and, you know, more or less emergency first aid type stuff that we can use. And then we have a slew of drugs, medicines, injectables. So we can triage pretty well out there. We even bring along surgical kits and medications that if we needed to do some kind of a short procedure, we could. Could it be a full anesthetic one? Probably not, you know. And so, yes, it can become an issue. And you could be like, geez, I wish I had a blood machine or I wish I had, you know, this or whatever. But... I honestly, for me, that's part of the adventure is saying, well, how am I going to make it work without? And you have to, because there's no other option. So sometimes you do get creative and how you're going to handle things. And, um, and maybe we'll be like, Hey, listen, we're short IV catheters. We need fluids or whatever. All right. Well, there may be a musher that's, that's leaving the checkpoint. They'll pick up a bag of fluids from that and they'll just mush it there. And so now all of a sudden you're restocked or they'll fly in another plane with supplies. So you beat your creative and how you work around those problems. And, and that's, that's part of what it is. I mean, it's, it's two weeks of problem solving. Is it you soloing or do you, are there veterinary technicians who are volunteering and other people who are helping medically at these positions? There are three, I think there's three technicians that they have that help volunteer over the whole course of the race. So you're more or less solo. Well, you're solo in a sense that there's no help, but at each checkpoint, they try and staff minimally three, but they try to get about four or five veterinarians there. And so you're never alone. There have been some 
checkpoints over the years where I've been with one other guy for a while. And that's tricky because it's a 24 hour around the clock veterinary clinic. I mean, you're moving all night long and all day long and, and the teams just keep coming in. So. And are they required? Is there a process for, are you required to be running wellness checks and stuff as these teams come through? Not just somebody reports a problem, dogs slowing down, dogs limping, dogs, you know, panting, whatever. I don't know, whatever, what signs come up. But are you having to do a check of all these teams as they come through? You are not required to. I mean, there are certain rules and I can't, there's one specifically with when veterinarians need to get involved when they don't. But in a general sense, at most checkpoints, there's no requirement that a veterinarian does. However, a veterinarian has to sign off on a musher's particular logbook at every checkpoint. So okay. if for some reason they're like, listen, man, I'm not staying here. I'm just going to pick up some food for the dogs and I'm blowing through and they're going to camp down the road, down the trail somewhere. A veterinarian has to be involved somewhere, but they don't have to look at the team. However, I would say over 95% of the time we look at every single team at every single checkpoint and they all get looked at. They all get listened to, examined, you know, respiratory rate. Sometimes it's just watching the gates as they come through. Sometimes it's a very quick auscultation. But if they're staying for more than, let's say, three or four hours, then we'll get on our knees on every single dog and put them through the ranges of motion, go with the musher, talk about what they've noticed. Is there any problems that they're having? And mushers are very open and, and willing to say, hey, listen, I've got this dog. I don't know, because n- none of them want anything to happen to their dogs. They all okay. want their dogs to be healthy. Nobody's trying to hide like, geez, I don't want to let this vet see what I'm doing. So fortunately, their dog handling and dog care is just so good. And that helps us too. Do you have a sense of how many dogs in one of your average races total are running? Like how many teams there are and then you count up however many they're allowed to have? I mean, how many dogs are we talking about? I mean, you're talking, let's say uh, 55, 60 teams. Wow. Most are going to start with 14 dogs. So 800, 840 is probably the highest that I've seen last year. And with COVID, it's been a little smaller. We might've had 40 or 50 teams, but you're still talking 600 or so dogs. Are the dogs' personalities very widely or do they all have kind of a similar personality? And is it easy to handle them or not? If you're trying to check their paws and reach around and grab them and stuff. Most dogs, most of them, because they're handled so often, I mean, the dog handlers are working with them. The mushers are working with them. They're always getting massaged and this sort of thing. I mean, they're, they're so used to it that most of them will just let you do whatever you want. Okay. You can pick them up when they're and move them around and play with their joints and that sort of thing. And they'll just lay there. There are a few teams you come across where it's like, all right, well, hey, you want to help me out here? And you like get the mushroom <laughs> to kind of help you. And, you know, that that happens too. But the most of them are just, they're just gentle. Are those ones, can you just tell, are they just a little more snappy than the other ones or a little like yeah. pulling away? The pull away, you know, just a little distance. I mean, you just kind of like in everyday practice, you see the dogs, the ears are down. They're looking at you like, dude, you come closer. I'm going to show you what I got in my mouth, you know, but that's so far if you're between them. You can just walk right up to these dogs and, and the ones that you can't really get near once the musher comes and, and sort of asserts a little bit of authority to them, then they just, they kind of, they're like, all right, I get it. You want to look at me, go ahead. So you're making a violent adjustment from Florida to Alaska 
is it hard on your body at all especially the first time you did it was just like a massive shock to the temperature system or was it you were so busy you didn't even notice yeah it's surprisingly easy to adjust and the biggest adjustment for me is the time difference which really isn't that bad but it's still four hours yeah and it's tough because i'm the, my first day or two i'll wake up at three in the morning and I'll call my wife in Florida and say, have a good day at work today, you know, and try to go back to sleep for a couple of hours. But the time is harder for me to get used to than the temperature. And I think that's just partially because I'm just outfitted. I mean, there's so much gear there. Although when it gets super cold, like when it gets minus 40, minus 45 or 50, you can't escape that. I mean, that is bone chilling no matter what you're wearing. Has the weather ever been so bad or dog health problems piled up suddenly that you got scared like uh uh-oh we're getting overwhelmed and there's no way to triage out of this or the weather's coming and i'm scared for myself have you ever actually been scared on the race yet it's probably a good story that would take the rest of your hour there was one time (laughs) that i was a little bit like ooh, i don't really like what's happening and that was really me involving having to traverse the yukon river which is more or less Alaska's Mississippi, at night, close to midnight, from one little Eskimo village down to an island in the middle of the Yukon in a three to four hour snow machine or snowmobile ride with a villager who I didn't know, who I swore was on something but couldn't (laughs) quite be sure, and trying to find this, this sort of oasis in the middle of nowhere, separated from my gear from a stupid decision that I made, and us getting stuck in the river because of, of some overflow issues with the river and thinking, okay, I'm done. I'm drowning. I'm going to be with this guy and nobody knows I'm here. That was the one time that I got worried. But as far as weather, I mean, it's it doesn't really matter if it's 30 below, 60 below, 20 above. It's winter. And you should, and I have learned since then, to never be away from my stuff. So that way, God forbid, if I did need to bed down somewhere, I've got plenty of stuff to keep me warm, build fires and that sort of thing. But I assume the temptation is you're out there doing physical work and I got to go just a little bit over that hill or we got to go over there. I just want to leave my stuff here. I don't want to pack it all up and move it to the next thing. I'll be right back. Yeah, I can see how that'd be a temptation. But you never do. I mean, and I learned now I take an inReach with me, which is like a little... um, satellite text uh, capability. It looks like a little, it looks like a phone more or less. Okay. So everywhere I go now that inReach is with me. So that way, if I'm, if I'm stuck somewhere, I now have a way to communicate to anybody anywhere and GPS my position and that sort of thing. I didn't have that on the Yukon river four years ago. And <laughs> I wish I did, but yeah, you'd never leave because without a pack of something, whether it's food, water, some survival gear, a knife, an inReach. You just don't. Even if you're going a mile down down river or a mile on a hike somewhere, because you never know. You never know what's coming. Why didn't your scary almost drowning in the Yukon River put you off the Iditarod? That brought me back even stronger. What? Like <laughs> Because it was what I was looking for, aside of the medicine side of things and the dogs. It just added to the adventure and it was just an, un, I mean, as I'm just, as I'm dead, and I can just see myself now, it just makes me laugh. At the time, I just couldn't believe it was happening. But I'm like, I'm thinking, man, what a story this is going to be. This is just going to be, so, as long as I live to tell it, of course. 
this is just going to be great. And then when I got to where we were going, the another buddy, I mean, we just were, it was the two of us, we were at this checkpoint together. And, and the reason we had to do that is because we were trying to beat the dog teams that were coming in. They had no veterinarians. They couldn't fly them in because the weather was so bad. So they snow machined us down there. That's how we kind of got ourselves into that predicament in the first place. And, uh, and we, I mean, it was just one that we laughed and we continue to still tell. And now when I go to these checkpoints, they're like, wait a minute, I remember hearing about your story four years ago. <laughs> yep. That was me. So you just get these and it just makes the adventure just that much more spectacular. In that moment with that, you talk about this villager, seemed like he might be on something. I'm not sure. Did the villager stay calm? So I'm assuming you're driving the snowmobile. It's getting in too much water or getting caught up in something and... Was the villager calm and collected? And so that oh, totally. or the villager panic and you're like, no. oh my God, now we're no. doomed. I mean, he was calm and collected. He is also, as I, again, a lot of this is sort of what I know now and what I didn't know then. And what okay. I didn't know then is that he was a, he was an iron dog competitor, which basically was, he raced some snow machines up there. So for him, this was like nothing. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly where he was. And he wasn't concerned the slightest. And even when we got caught in the overflow, I didn't even understand what that was. And and when the river freezes over, there's still some water that flows a little bit over the top, maybe about a foot. Okay. And then above that, there might be like a two-inch or three-inch shell of ice. Okay. So we're we're blazing along, and now he's racing. And I'm holding on to his back. And I'm trying to keep my big pack boots on the runners. And I'm slipping and I'm cursing, but he can't hear me. And then when we got stuck, I thought we were sinking. I mean, I thought we were going in the river. We weren't. (laughs) We were only going down a foot. But I thought, I'm like, here I am out here in the middle of nowhere. And I'm going down with the ship. And, you know, so. But he was like, oh, well, just get off the back and help me push. And I'm like, push? Push where? <laughs> like I've so never been. Right. You're like, I understand ice and I understand yes. water under ice. It's perfectly the That's ice it. under the water under right. the under ice. The that ice. other layer is a mystery. Yeah, yeah. New concept for me. Right. So did, did he have to talk you in to like get or do you watch him get off and he's standing on something? And you're like, OK, well, I guess. No, he thought I think he thought I knew what I was doing, which okay. either that <laughs> or he thought I was just good at faking at one of the two. But no, I got out. And I'm pushing and he's trying to push and, and moving the, and the treads are going in circles and they're just kicking up more water behind him. And the back end is just sinking lower and lower. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay. So we had been traveling with another group and the group was a good 45 minutes in front of us. Okay. So at some point I knew or I hoped somebody would be coming back. And that's where my gear was. And so certainly, you know, I'm like, okay, well, when's this going to happen? Meanwhile, wolves are out there and he's talking about, I got to get, he brings, he's packing his gun with him because, you know, wolves are out. And I'm like, well, you know, (laughs) what the hell am I doing out here? It's one of the few times that I question, what am I doing? And, but they came back and and then we towed a rope from the one guy's snow machine to this guy's. We pulled it out. We were on our way. And about a half hour later, but it was a it was a little bit nerve wracking for that that thirty minutes. So you were hungry for the adrenaline and excitement of this experience. Has it changed your view of medicine or animals and what they can do 
at all when you go back to Florida? So ha has it shaped any of your own veterinary medicine when you go back and practice in your nice, secure hospital in, in warm Florida? Back in my regular job. And yes, regular, regular job, right. <laughs> the outlook that it changed for me from an animal perspective, yeah. aside of racehorses in this, is I've never seen athletes work like these dogs work before ever. And I've never seen them do it with the enthusiasm that they bring to it. I mean, it's just, it is an amazing sight to see. It's almost brings tears to your eyes when you see these teams come in in the middle of the night and all you hear is the panting of the dogs and all you see is the like the mist coming off of them when they're breathing <laughs> and the headlamp of the musher and you're walking you're watching them it's just an it's just a, you can't put it into words and then they rest and then they're there for let's say three or four hours and when the musher's ready to go these dogs are chomping i mean they're barking they're like, let's do another 80 miles, you know? And I'm thinking, how did they have the stamina for this? So it was just amazing to see that because in everyday practice, the pugs, the boxers, the shepherds, I mean, these are, it's Florida. They're not being used for what they're bred for. And some are just bred for being house pets and they're fat and overweight and chubby. And they're air conditioned all day. They don't even know the day, Florida sun. You know? They don't retrieve like a retriever should do. <laughs> they, you know, so you don't see that side of actually what a working breed is actually supposed to do. Yeah. That was a trans. It was almost depressing, if I'm honest with you, to kind of see like, all right, well, you know, here we are with our regular dogs, mine included. I mean, I've got a Yorkie who's old and half blind and, and he's, it's like, all right, well, maybe I'll hook you up to a sled and we'll take it around the block, you know. <laughs> That I brought back, I, I think from a working perspective, I brought back a, a, maybe a different mentality or maybe a different outlook on how I practice. But from the dogs, that's basically it. From the medicine, I mean, I'm not going to lie, it was nice to get back to send it out to the lab. Let's do the labs now. Let's do this. <laughs> and having a staff being able to put catheters in and take x-rays and just know what the problem is now. Right. Instead of have to wonder what the problem is and never really know if you're ever going to know the answer. What happens at the end? Do the dogs sort of, I mean, they probably get a last look at the end, but then they probably disperse back to where they're from and they go off to their own regular veterinarian. So probably a lot of heavy duty diagnosis and treatment probably doesn't happen on the race. None happens on the race as far okay. as that, because we don't have those capabilities. They get, there's a huge screening process beforehand, blood work and cardiac workup and all these things that veterinarians that are in charge of these particular groups of dogs have to sign off on that these dogs are healthy to run this. Yeah. And the musher has to be qualified. They have to have done so many races. And the dogs have to have done so many you know, races so that they that there's some credibility to them saying, okay, we're here at the start to finish, you know, to, to do the race. Afterwards, they yeah, they all get looked at and they all get drug tested. These dogs get drug tested on the trail. For, uh, performance little, little drugs, known fact, but... Yeah, there are teams specifically to drug test these dogs to look for performing enhancing drugs. Yeah, they're particular. Are most of those things, I mean, what would they be on? Would they be on either, I mean, heavy duty? Would they be on painkillers? If they have injuries, they're on painkillers they shouldn't yes. be, and they're working through an injury. 
Or are they putting them, I mean, is it the equivalent, are they giving them, you know, I don't know what it would be the version like of, doping. but dog uppers. <laughs> like, because we need them to go, right. more energy, right. so they try to pump them with stuff. Right. It's mostly they're looking for, I mean, pain medicines is going to be the biggest one. Anti-inflammatories, some of the opioids. I mean, they test for a slew of drugs. And there's some that dogs have to get. I mean, all of them are on antacids because they're prone to ulcers. All of them are on... I shouldn't say all, a lot of them take diarrhea medicines because mm-hmm. they can get changes in their stool, but they get tested for some of these more ones that could maybe give them an advantage over others. Okay. Did watching these working dogs, did it make you think, cause I mean, you've got extreme hobbies. You could get your own working dog. So agility, I mean, maybe you don't <laughs> want to be a musher, but did you think about like, I want a dog that does stuff like this? Like not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say, wow, that would be great, but no, I don't. I think it's just, it's nice to see, it's nice to be a part of, but it's not something that I I would take, I don't think I would find joy in, in having an agility dog or or training one to be one. It's neat to see them do it, of course. Right. You know. So you had a perspective, it gave you a, a massive amount of respect for these dogs, work, their abilities and their you know determination and zest for what they're doing. In Florida, there's a lot of racehorse stuff in Florida, right? Yeah. Okay. And there's the same complaint, breed these horses that enjoy running and racing, but it's a dangerous thing. If the horse runs fast, it could break a leg. And if it gets some injuries, that'll be the end of, not just the end of its career, but the end of its life. And so the argument against these working animals is always, well, we don't absolutely need them. So then maybe we shouldn't breed these animals to do this. What is your thinking on the breed, the working breeds of dogs? who like this, they like to do this. All the breeding has been done to get the animals that enjoy doing whatever it is, rooting into the ground, chasing things down, running around like these dogs. I don't know, what's your take? But you did mention sort of passingly animal rights people talking about things like this. I did rod shouldn't be run. Dogs shouldn't be, have to do this. There shouldn't, we shouldn't be running dogs in this way. They shouldn't be handled this way. Do you have a take on that? Or do you ever ask for that? Do people ask your opinion on that? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I get it from some clients that okay do you have like pictures up do you like talk about it? is it a talking point or you don't really don't you don't okay it's not that i don't i mean it's online like if somebody looks at my little website bio they're like oh he runs you know he works at diderot so when people ask me about it i'm all in because i love talking about (laughs) it you know and but i don't bring it up because i also don't know where people stand you know, as a, in a, in the professional setting, whether that's animal rights or whether it's politics, I've just learned over the years to kind of just keep my mouth shut. Don't really engage one way or the other. While I, whether I'm for or against, it just doesn't doesn't work well if you're on the wrong side because you're not going to change somebody's opinion in the middle of a dog exam. You know, right? Nor really should you. But yeah, I mean, my take on it is. It's such a different perspective, and I think that that's where some of these animal rights groups miss out, miss this, is that in the lower 48, unless you're like northern Minnesota, way up there, yeah, there's just not a lot of need for working dogs. But up there, they still do. And so it's still a thing. And so part of it, yes, it's tradition. It's not like it used to be back, let's say, in the early 1900s and, and before then, where they were heavily relied on to make some of these runs to, from these towns, but they're still up there. And I think an animal that even a racehorse, I mean, they're bred to race. They love to do it. These dogs, if you saw them, 
Some of them get to know them and they're ready to turn right around and go back the other way. So how can you make the argument that that's not in their best interest? They absolutely love what they do. And so the Iditarod, and there's tons of races that they do up there every year. Yeah. That just happens to be the most well-known. It's just a platform for them to be able to do that. And so it's tough for me to... I can see the perspective of animal rights groups when they nitpick at, at the cases that they may find here and there, reported abuse or a dog dies or whatever. But, yeah. you know, my argument is that is I'll have a dog die that's in the air conditioning that goes outside that shouldn't have been outside because of the poorly bred Frenchie. <laughs> but yet somebody thinks it's OK to take it for a walk or they leave it in the car or they do something else that's stupid that ends up causing harm to that animal. So it, it goes both ways in one yeah. sense, you know. So the other thing about the racehorse thing, a lot of people take their love for these racehorses and put it into, well, if these racehorses don't get a life-ending injury, at some point their career ends and they have to do something else. So they try to find ways, where could these horses go off and live happy lives, even though they don't get to run anymore? What happens to Iditarod dogs when they're like, uh, he's not quite, he's a little too old, he's out of, out of shape, he has some new condition. Where do Iditarod dogs, where do they retire to? So a lot of them stay with the musher. I mean... Okay. These kennels, they may have 30, 40, 50 dogs going. Some of the bigger kennels have more than that, sometimes double. And they're very protective of their dogs. Like, they love them like their children. And, I mean, even some of these mushers that come from Norway or from Europe, I mean, they have to ferry their entire team across. <laughs> that ain't cheap. And so they just love them. So a lot of them will keep them, and some they'll find homes for. But even then, like... I would never even think to ask a musher, hey, can I have one of your dogs? Where do you live, Florida? Uh, no. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry, but my dog's not a couch potato. It's not going to do that, you know. So they'll find people. And in that particular community, the fan base or just the local communities, the mushing communities, they're all put to good homes. It's not like some of these horror stories that you hear about the greyhounds down here where, right. you know, bad things happen. That's not like that up there. Do you ever see, does it also give you another vision? We human beings live in all kinds of places because of air conditioning and heating allows us to live in all kinds of crazy places that some of these dogs, if they had to be outside all the time, wouldn't choose. Do you ever walk around Florida and you're like, these Alaskan Malamutes walking around on the street and like it's 95 and high humidity. Does it give you a different, do you wonder about these heavily coated dogs now in hot climate or do they, do they acclimate and you figure, ah, oh, they're probably. I mean, they don't acclimate. That's the thing, okay. <laughs> you know, and so they can get away with it, you know, right. in a sense that, okay, you've got these Malamutes or even shepherds. I mean, any thick coated breed dog yeah. in a subtropical climate where it's 90 some in the daytime and the humidity is just as bad. <laughs> that's not their climate. It's just not. And so they can get used to it as long as they're air conditioned. They get a place to go back to. But again, the perspective that I bring is that these Alaskan Huskies, they don't run well when it's above zero. <laughs> oh, seriously? So even yeah. above, like they start getting, they overheat on the run. They overheat. Okay. And so the mushers will choose to then say, well, we can't really run during the day. I mean, they'll maybe they'll go short distances, but they'll run them in the middle of the night when it's less than zero, 10, 20 below or whatever. So yeah, when I come to Florida and I see a dog that's out in the middle of the summer, I'm thinking, how is this dog surviving when I know it's not comfortable? It can't be. It just can't be. 
So, you know, you'll never never change it. I mean, but that's like anywhere else in the country, any hotter climate, people are still going to want these dogs. Have you met any people working on Iditarod that you never would have met otherwise and were like very different personalities than your clients or the people you grew up with or the people you work with in practice? Most of them. Okay. Most of them feel different than the people you're around all the time. Yeah. I mean, in one sense, you got to be a little, you got to have a screw loose somewhere, right? (laughs) Myself included, in order to even want to go do that. You have to have this sort of mentality that, all right, well, let's try it and let's see what happens no matter what your background is. And the mushers, I think they may have a couple more screws loose than the rest (laughs) of us because I look at them, I'm thinking how, because they're standing on these sleds for a week, two weeks at a time, thinking, how do you do that? And you have to stay awake. Some of them don't. Some of them kind of fall asleep a little bit and and the dogs are so good about following the trail. They know exactly where they're going, but those guys are the ones that I'm just like, how do you do this? I've met people that have been on the Naked and Afraid shows. I've been met people that have <laughs> climbed Everest and Denali. I've met people that that are so extreme into what they do, things that I've never even think of doing. And just to hear those stories is cool. And then I meet cardiologists. I meet neurosurgeons or that sort of people that might be volunteering and doing crew and one of the guys is, who's one of the bush pilots, he's a cardiologist in his normal life, and he's a pilot during the Iditarod. <laughs> so you just meet so many different people from so many walks of life. And, and one of the cool things is, is everybody's equal. So, you know, in private practice, it's sort of the hierarchy. You've got the veterinarians, you've got the technicians, you've got, you know, the tech assistants, you've got the kennel people. It's sort of a standard of way that things move up and down the chain. But up there... I'm Greg to everybody, and I'm just another guy that works there. I just happen to be a vet and look at the dogs, but I like that aspect of it. And there's just as I'm just as important as the guy that that might do fishing over the summertime, but he works crew and he shovels the the straw and and he brings the dogs in. And I'm just as important as the guy that's cooking our meals, and everybody's treated with the same amount of respect, which makes it more family than anything else. Do you ever think if you come back, do you ever think, oh, I wonder, because that's a very flat, you're talking this very flat organization where everybody's kind of on the same level. It's a precarious environment. A lot of things have to be done. Everybody's got to pitch in. We're not worried about who's in charge of who and giving orders. The hierarchy helps, but do you ever come back and be like, I wonder if we could just wash away the hierarchy. We'd all just be, we're all flat. We're all just getting, obviously there are certain things only the veterinarian can do, but other than that, forget the hierarchy. We're just going to be one big group. It would be interesting to put that in private practice. It is tough, though, because I think in our setting, the hierarchy comes with territory in a sense that the kennel folks work in the kennel and they're responsible for these particular things. And the veterinary technicians, they're responsible for these things. And the kennel, they want to be veterinary technicians. And so they're also learning. And the veterinary technicians, some of them want to be doctors. So it maintains itself um, there it's just a different work structure. And I don't know how that would work if it was just abandoned for, okay, everybody's on the same playing field. (laughs) I just, you know, because I don't think our sort of society of how we're working would even allow for that. Up there, you have to, because if you can't adapt and get along, and when I'm not listening to a dog, if I can't help out in the kitchen or shovel, you know, dog poop or, or get down and dirty too, 
nobody's going to really want me to come back and work with them next year. Right. And it happens. I mean, then you get some of these trail crew that or veterinarians that may not be as receptive to to that mentality. They may want to stick on the hierarchy mentality and leave some of these menial tasks to other people, but it just it doesn't work well. And so you kind of weed through that and you get to the solid group of people that, okay, we're in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's going to be here for a week. We have to get along. We have to do our stuff or it's just not going to work. Right. You know? Yeah. Is there a next level to the Iditarod or would you add another winter dog race or is there another next thing you do in the 4K, you're flying, you're on the Iditarod. Do you have another one? You're like, I'd really like to get into, I don't know, crocodile wrangling. I don't know. What you're <laughs> no, I think the Iditarod's it for me. I mean, there's so okay. many races that are up there, but the Iditarod's the long, I mean, there's another one that's up there too that's pretty long, but they've just shortened it. The Iditarod's the longest one. And so for me, it allows me to escape Florida for the winter or for the summer, get up there and and just kind of do it for a long period of time. And the more that I'm there, the more people I meet, the more it becomes a second family, the more I want to go back. And and yes, I could change it up, but it's I like where I'm at, you know. Does anybody in Florida ever so first of all, Florida in the summer, people are like, Oh, lucky you, you get to go someplace colder has anybody ever said tell me more about that because i think i want to go or i'd volunteer for that yes there have been a couple when people know that i go up there and it's because it's in i mean i say summer but i'm really talking about the warm it's in march yeah but every time i say oh yeah i'm going to alaska most people in florida are like oh you're going on a cruise (laughs) and i'm like "Mm, no i don't think you realize quite how cold it is right now but, uh, you know, I have come across some veterinarians and some other people that I work with that are like, dude, I so want to do that. How do I get involved? And it's sort of a, it, it opens for the conversation that'll just keep me rambling and probably give them a lot more information about it than you want. But there are a few veterinarians that from Florida, I think there's, there's another lady that, that goes up there. There's two actually that go from Florida on a regular basis, but I've run across a few people that are like, no way in hell, my wife being one of them. She would never do it. <laughs> yeah, because she's uh, a veterinarian know, too. She, she could is. totally go. Yeah. She would. And I every year I'm like, I can find a spot for you. <laughs> I've been there enough now where I know what some people that I could probably make your life easy. But when I tell her some of these stories of just being way out there and just being so primitive, she's like, no, I'm not doing that. Want to learn more about the Iditarod? Visit Iditarod.com. Want to ask Greg about it? You can catch him in his old stomping grounds, the hospital he sold two years ago, still practicing, at West Boca Veterinary Center in Boca Raton, Florida. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us, and until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.